So we're reading this morning from 1 John chapter 3, uh, 11 to 18. So 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. And this is what the Word of God says. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Do you hear, Do you hear that? Proof, evidence that we are saved is that we love one another. That's what this says. Verse 14 I'll read it again. <laughs> we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And now verse 16, which is a key verse for us this morning. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought, we must, to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your name be glorified this morning. I ask that you would uh, help me to move aside Help me not get in your way of, of Lord God, um, speaking to us this morning. May your word pierce through the layers of darkness in our hearts, the layers of stubbornness in our hearts, the layers of, of, of hard-hardness in our hearts, and may you speak to us in a way that it changes us, Father. I ask that you would save today. I ask that you would heal today. I ask that you would purpose today. I ask that you would, Lord, uh, convict today. Would you please do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, and give us um, hearts and ears that, that will hear your word, Lord Jesus, but not just, let, let us not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. About a year and a half ago, um, our, uh, our core team from Summit Church, uh, we decided to go on a retreat. Uh, it was probably around the same time that I first connected to Pastor Mike, right? It was, um, we didn't know it was going to be such an amazing relationship and partnership with the elders and Restored Church, right? But so it was about a year and a half ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. We decided to go on a retreat up north, right? It was great, great cabin. Great company, of course, for the three days that we were there. Great food. And if you know anything about me, you know that I love food. I love food. I just love food. I love the different nuances and flavors, and, and I just love food. I'll just leave it at that, right? So one, I think it was Saturday afternoon, and um, we were, I think most people were kind of playing a game, and there's a few of us watching them, right? And all of a sudden, I get this great idea. Let me just make myself a delicious sandwich, right? Well, what do you do when you have nothing? You just make yourself a sandwich, right? And, and so, so here I go. I, I 
get up from my chair. I, I, you know, head to the fridge and just to get my ingredients. But you got to know there's this one ingredient that I grew up with. And judge, do whatever you want, but I love this ingredient. We, I think we call it pate or, or liver spread. Does anyone know what that stuff is? Of course. <laughs> of course. All right. So liver spread. They make it in chicken or out of chicken or pork. Anyways, I love that stuff, right? So, so but before I hit the fridge... I look at my wife, which I love very, very, very much, right? And I ask her, hey, babe, would you like a sandwich? I'm making myself a sandwich. I'd like to make you a sandwich if you are hungry. And she goes, no, no, I'm good. So now I'm going to relate to all the men and the husbands in the house. I ask my wife again. Because what happens is I, when we go out, I ask her, babe, would you want to order this? You know, I'll order the second portion, right? Because I know usually what happens, she'll say no, and then she'll eat my food, right? And I don't want that to happen because I love food too much, right? So I asked her again, babe, are you sure you don't want me to make you a sandwich? And she goes, nah, no, I'm not hungry. Don't worry about it. I'm like, okay, sweet, cool. So here I go, make myself a sandwich. It was delicious. I mean, that layer of, of, of liver spread was thick, and then tomatoes and salami and cheese and all that. Is anyone hungry this morning? I'm hungry. <laughs> so, so... And then a few other people followed suit. Like, they were like, oh, man, that looks good. Let me just make myself a sandwich, right? So it's like a few other people, and they finished the liver spread. So there's no more liver spread. I have my sandwich in my hand. I'm about to, I sit down. I'm about to eat, watching people, you know, watching the rest of, of the group playing a game. And I'm biting the sandwich. It tastes absolutely glorious. And then all of a sudden, my wife looks at me. And I know that look. She did not have to say anything because that look said, I want a bite of your sandwich. <laughs> so there's this thing that I'm really, I'm really opening my heart <laughs> this morning and sharing. I mean, this is, this is a problem that I have, right? And it's fine. It's church, right? We should do that, right? So there's this thing welling up from inside of me. It's called anger and rage and annoyance and frustration and all of it together, right? It's not coming out yet, right? Or at least not yet. And and she's just looking at me, and I know exactly what's, what, what she's saying, right? And I'm, and I'm already having a conversation with myself inside of me, right? No, no words. Just, dude, you can't do this. You got to lay down your life for, 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 for your wife. You got to love her. You got, dude, you just cannot. Wow, wow this, is, this is, you're a preacher. You're a pastor. You cannot do this, right? And I just cannot control those emotions inside of me, right? I'm like, no, no. So the flesh is battling with the spirit, you know, at this, at this point, right? And it comes out. It just comes out. And I'm, I don't know exactly what my reaction was, right? But at least one person, Christina, noticed that reaction, right? My wife notices it, no, notices it, and she approaches me. She gets up from the chair. She comes to my, she just grabs the sandwich out of my hand. And as she bites out of it, she looks at me. Because, because of that reaction, I'm going to have your last bite as well. Let me put some vernacular on what she just said. Because you, you are not laying down your life for me. I'm going to have that last bite, right? Everything ended up being okay. We're good. Thank God. But why am I saying that? Why am I saying that? Did you know that we're not asked to simply tolerate each other? That's kind of what I did, right? That's, that's gave you an example of what not to do, Right? But to lay down our life for one another, that's what we're asked to do. That's, that's, the, the, that's the mess, that's the passage, that's in the passage that I just read, right? We're, we're not attempting to just get along. We are attempting to be the family of God. 
And this is what God desires from us. It's right. It's, it's just, it's just, you know, um, it's on the pages of the word. You don't have to look too intently or too, you know, it is right there. Why? Well, here's the motivation behind it. It was clear in the passage because he laid down his life for us. Bible says we ought to now lay down our life for one another. Hmm. There's an interesting element which we need to pick up right from the beginning. And John gets specific for a reason, you know. He says, let's just start with the church that you're a part of, that we're a part of. Just start in the community that God has placed you. Start in that local body of believers that God has placed you. It's in that context that he's challenging um, us to learn to lay down our life for one another. For a little bit of a context, because it helps, it helps us so much to know a little bit of context. The community that John is writing the letter to is probably a network of, of smaller churches or house churches, right? And within one of these smaller churches, there's some theological differences, right? That, that happens in our local churches. And because of these theological differences, there was a split, right? A split, a division that has torn one of these small churches, right, from this network. So John is writing to the other smaller churches in the network, within the network, to interpret the split, right, and to warn them about the problem. So it's in that context that he's challenging his audience, these churches, the rest of them, to lay down your life for one another. Well, to be honest with you, that is not a small thing, is it? It is actually a huge task. It is a tall order. I dare say an impossibility if we think that we can do it on our own strength. Allow me to read verse 16 to us again. It's the key verse. And everything, I think every verse in this passage kind of revolves, comes around this one verse, verse 16. This is what the Word of God says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to, we must Lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. What I would like us to do for this morning is to, is to start making sense of what this laying down our life means, right? Because, I mean, I read that passage and I, I, I go, I, I want to know what that means, right? I want to know what it means because evidently this needs to be an important part of our, or it is or should be an important part of our life, our lifestyle, Right? Uh, it's supposed to define us and typify us or typify how you and I live on a regular basis. So we need to know what laying down your life means. I mean, not only in the marketplace, not only when we go to school, not only when we go to work, but in our faith community as well. So what does it mean to lay down your life for a brother and sister? What do you think it means? Well, let me explain in a few words what it meant for the early church, right? What it meant for the hearers of this letter that John wrote. When studying the Bible, one of the biggest mistakes that we can make is overlook the first century audience, right? What did this passage mean for our brothers and sisters in the first century, for that immediate, for the immediate recipients? You know, we skip this step and we get into a lot of hot water really quickly. So in the context of John's 
audience, Christians were actually anticipating persecution. That's the context. And the possibility of death. Some had actually been martyred, already killed, some of them, right? The reason for that was a refusal to participate in the worship of the emperor, right? And therefore, the enemies of the Christian community would have been more than happy to betray some of the Christians, right? To the officials. And since prisoners were tortured for information and a lot of them were slaves, um, uh, Christians had to pay a huge price, to say the least, to avoid betraying their fellow brothers and sisters. That was the context. So laying down your life according to our first century context, according to all commentators and scholars, it means, drum roll. Oh, thank you. I was just, <laughs> wow. Thank you for, yeah, you're actually listening. That's great. <laughs> it means to die. Go figure. What? As much as I don't like the meaning, I can't change it. That's the word of God. It means to die. I would like it if, if it would have meant having a selfless attitude or being nice and kind and saying hello to people. And that, that's about it, you know. I would have loved that. So for the early church, early, you know, early church, it meant physical death. That's what it meant. But even for some today, right, even for some today, it might mean a literal physical death, right? I mean, just think about it. Taking a bullet for someone. I mean, it doesn't happen too often, but it could happen. Just taking a bullet for someone or saving someone from drowning and you yourself as you attempt to save that person, you die yourself. You drown yourself. That could happen, right? Additionally, we know that some of our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world today are laying down their life because of their faith in Christ, right? We know that's the case. But for the rest of us that are still alive, it still has to have the meaning of dying, right? But we're still here. What's going on? Are we dying? The only meaning cannot be just being a martyr. It cannot or dying to save a, a fellow brother. It has to also have meaning for those of us that are still alive. What does laying down your life mean as we still have breath in our bodies as we, and have yet transferred into eternity? And of course, it still means to die. So then the question is, die to what? What are we dying to? That's a good question, I think. When studying scripture, we need to remember to bring into our studying a few essential tools. Let me just list a few. One is, we call it systematic theology, meaning you can't just make a principle out of one passage. You got to look at the entire, entire Bible, right, and then kind of assess that principle, right? That's systematic theology. Then we got to look at the historical context, social context, and then up and down the page context, which is the literary context, right? The one that I want to emphasize now for, for for our passage for today is the up and down context, the literary context, right? Meaning, read what's going on before the passage that you're looking, looking at and read a few verses after. You have to keep and understand your passage where it is and assess what's around it, right? Okay. It's kind of like going to a, a family reunion to learn about a friend, right? And you're like, ah, now I see why you're messed up. Because your uncle's the same way. 
right? I mean, good party, good food, but you're messed up. You guys are, right? So you got to understand the context. It's kind of like that, right? Weird analogy, I know. So looking at one of the uncle verses around verse 16, let's read a couple and then kind of see what's going on. Understanding our key verse uh, a little bit better. So verse 12 first. Do not be like Cain, the word says, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. And I'll skip to verse 15. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. I think we're getting somewhere. It's clear to me that for those of us that are still alive in this body, in this shell, looking at these verses, well, we're supposed to die to hate. Dying to hate. This is one type of dying. This is one type of laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's what the word says. Dying to hate. When he was a a graphic illustration. I actually, Raz used it a couple of years ago in one of his sermons. And I'm going to take that just to illustrate my next point here. Um, it was a YouTube video that was circulating around and a few years back. And I watched it, but then I had to shut it off. I couldn't watch it anymore. This big guy, this thief that breaks into a home. And I guess he didn't notice that the homeowner was home. Or at least he didn't anticipate that, right? He notices that the small, uh, small lady, right, half of his size, but the, and this guy starts to beat her senselessly to death. I, I just couldn't watch it. I had to just shut it off. I mean, you, you get sick to your stomach just watching that. I get sick to my, I cringe only at the thought of something like that happening to my wife. I mean, man, you can understand that rage that wells up inside of you if that were to happen, right? Well, let me remind us of two important things that will help me drive my point home, right? We are all the bride of Christ, correct? Or I should say authentic Christians are the bride of Christ. Second thing, furthermore, Jesus says that hating a brother or sister, and I just read that, is like murder, right? So I dare say that sometimes we are kind of like that thief who beats senseless that homeowner. Again, I get sick to my stomach if, you know, if that were to happen to my wife. But I am perfectly fine at hating sometimes, beating senseless, right, murdering my brother and sister, which are the bride of Christ. I know it's an extreme illustration, but it proves a point, I believe, right? The story we are given to articulate this principle is the first murder story in the Bible. And even though we're not given much we know that it escalates pretty fast, right? Um, Cain and Abel are the first children of Adam and Eve. I think maybe a lot of people know the story. Abel works with the animals and Cain works with the ground, the fruits and the veggies, right? They come to worship God, kind of like a church service, if you will, right? And Abel brings the best of his herd and Cain brings kind of like the middle pack of the veggies and fruits, you know what I mean? God makes a point and he says, I accept Abel's because it's first and I'm first and I deserve first. I don't accept Cain's because it's not first and I'm first and I deserve what's first, right? It's actually the teaching of the first fruits, which is paramount among the people of Israel. And it speaks volumes to us today as well about keeping God first. But that's, that's 
you know, a different sermon for a different time. Something happens in Cain's heart towards his brother Abel. And Cain starts to despise his brother, right? And best we can tell, I think it is safe to say that Cain has a bad case of jealousy, of envy, right? He doesn't like the fact that his brother is blessed and evidently he was not. It gets so bad that Cain kills his brother Abel. Now, let's take that and bring it to 1 John 3.16 or at least our verse, our, our key verse and, and, and I'm asking, if we do that, I'm asking this. Let's ask this question. Lord, what are you trying to say? I think the first observation that we can make when it comes to dying to hate is this. For some of us, as soon as I say hate or that there's a possibility for us Christians to hate, we immediately say, dude, I don't, I don't hate anyone. I don't have hate in my heart. What are you saying, man? I'm not a racist. I'm not a bigot, right? I don't, I don't have hate. I, no, Christians cannot have hate in their heart, right? Okay, okay, but if you go to the story of Cain and Abel, you're going to get convicted pretty fast. Cain wasn't telling Abel that I don't like you because you don't look like me, because you are from a different people's group, you're from a different continent. No, he was not saying that. No, no, they grew up together. They were brothers, and just as John is addressing to the faith community, brothers and sisters in a church, he's saying the first act of hate was what? It was jealousy. It was envy. It's amazing how you and I can slip out of the idea of I'm not a hater. Right? I don't get online and tell people they're ugly. Right? I don't tell people online that, hey, you should quit being a pastor because you suck at it. I don't do that. But John says we are to die to hate in all of its sneaky forms. There's quite a few of them. Like envy. Like jealousy. Are you serious? They still have a job and I got laid off? John is saying that can quickly turn into hate, which is murder. In the eyes of God. I looked up the word hate. It gets a lot worse. I looked up the word hate in our context. And the meaning has a few nuances. It means, and we're, we usually expect these to uh, detest and despise. Yeah, yeah, I can deal with that. Yeah. But it can also mean to love less than something else or to avoid. Oh. Okay. A pastor once said this. Your heart needs to be in a place every single day that you can walk into a room with any person you've ever known and ever met so that you'd be able to walk up to them, shake their hands, say hello, and be kind. Can you do that? Can I do that? Is there anyone you're avoiding? Is there anyone you're loving less? And when you see the, ah, dude, let's go this way. Or at least you're doing that in your heart. Is there any people group that you avoid? The Bible says we actually died to that. That's, that's what I just read. We died to that. Christians don't get to do that anymore. They don't. We have relinquished the rights to harbor any detesting attitude. 
We are not allowed to think and hope ill will towards people. We're not. We, of all people from planet Earth, as Jesus' followers collectively as a faith community, we died to hate, not allowed, and will not tolerate it. Right? Not in our lives, not in our families. It's not who we are. We died to hate. Amen? As a side note, can I just... In, in closing this first point, can I just say that as a family, the church family, we die to individualism. Do you know what makes a team great? When you score, it's like I scored. This way we all push for the same goal with all, all of our resources, time, money, and giftings. So dying to hate, how are you doing so far? Let's move to the second type of dying, which we can find in verse 17. The second type of dying, we're trying to understand what it means to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters, right? The second type of dying is to die to the right of closing your heart off to people. It's, this one is very explicit in the passage too. Many Bible commentators say that verse 17 is actually an explanation of verse 16 or what 16 means. I'll read it again. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? ESV says, says it this way, yet closes his heart against him. John is saying here that there are people that are closing their heart off to their brothers and sisters. Yeah, we die to hate, to that spirit and attitude that consumed Cain, right? Jealousy and envy and hate, but have but have died to the right of closing, turning our hearts off to people. We don't get to turn our hearts off to our brothers and sisters. We don't get to do that. That's what the Bible says. Have you ever been to a, a big city like New York? And uh, the streets can get so congested and busy. Like people shop and people right, walk the streets. And all of a sudden when closing time comes around and the shops uh, are, are closing down, right? Those metal curtains, right, vertical or horizontal sometimes, they just come down. And in a matter of minutes, that street becomes a ghost street just like that. I was thinking that it's exactly what we do in our hearts. Boom, closed for you, my brother and sister. I could care less. I don't say that. And we reserve the right to ignore empathy and compassion and mercy for many times convenience, comfort, and personal opinions. Pfft, I'm not going to give you money. <laughs> I'm not going to give you money. I know what you'll do with it. I work hard for my money. All you want is a hall pass. Handouts, the gift of suspicion, not much of a gift, but have you noticed that a lot of Christians have it? Pfft, I'm not going to give you my time I barely have some for me what are you talking about no way because sometimes it's easier to just throw money at someone in need isn't it but time let me ask you this what is the most precious commodity that you have that's dearest and most valuable to you think about it I'll give you a few seconds that right there you have died to the right of keeping it to yourself. If your brother or sister is in need, give out of it freely. That's what the Bible says. 
Listen, no one is saying to know everybody's situation in church. But you need to know somebody that has a problem that you can help them with, right? If someone has a problem with paying their bills, John is saying, did it ever occur to you that you should help them out? <laughs> right? We're up on the stage sometimes singing songs and singing about Jesus, singing about how, you know, gracious his love is towards us and how he saved us from the dumpster, right? And we can't even pay our brother's utility bill, right? John is saying, this is not church. If we cannot do that, we are supposed to die to a closed heart. We are called to be generous. I'm called to be generous, not only with my money, with my time, with all of my resources, because our God is generous too. And sometimes we need to express our generosity towards people that are mean and ugly. <laughs> we're generous to the core. We're not stingy. We're not exclusive. We're not the community that says, man, you got to prove it. You want my respect? Then earn it. It's not who we are. Did we earn Jesus' respect? Did we earn his sacrifice? Did we earn his care? Did we earn his love? No, we did not. How about you got my respect because you're a human being? While you breathe, you got my respect. We died to a closed heart and all of the stingy attitudes that go with it. I need to say this, though. I need to say this. I want to mention this, that sometimes there's boundaries and there's discernment, okay? And in some cases, there's so much pain that, and hurt and abuse. And I understand legal boundaries and we should respect them. Sometimes you actually need to not go in a room with particular people, okay? And sometimes, and actually all the time, we should use discernment. Because some people just, just take from you and they do nothing. You enable their situation. So yes, legal boundaries, discernment, but, but I am... Uh, I'm speaking generally here, right, about an attitude and a spirit of closing your heart off to brothers and sisters. If you don't feel challenged by this, you are either Mother Teresa or you are lying to yourself. I want us to move to the third form of laying down your life, right? So not only are we called to die to hate or to die to a closing our heart off to, to brothers or brothers and sisters, but, but there's this idea, this third idea, which is not explicit in, our, in the passage, but I believe it's, it's implicit, is to die to the idea of my life. We have to die to this idea that, hey, this is my life. I do whatever I want with it. I want to remind you that one of the blessings and promises that come from laying down our lives, which is kind of ironic, that there's an assurance and a confidence in our heart that God loves us and that he will take care of us no matter what happens. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? You give and give, right? And, but then you receive because God will take care of us, right? But we are to die to our life. No, 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 Obi, no, it's my life. No, I call the shots. This is my life. I only have one. Nobody tells me how to live my life, right? This is my moment. This is my time. This is my life, and I'm going to do what I think with it. The Bible says that for those of us that have been brought from death to life, for those of us that have accepted Christ and the fact that he laid down his life for us, that we're actually to lay down that attitude that says, this is my life. Galatians 2.20, this is so clear. 
I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I no longer live. You no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. This is not my life. It is not. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion and vice versa. I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God, right? Because He loved me. Because He loved me and gave Himself for me. I have died to my life. By the way, that's the key to dying to hate. And this is the key to dying, to closing off your heart towards your brothers and sisters. What, what is it? That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That he loves us and that he gave himself for us so I can give myself to others, even those that I do not understand, even those that I do not connect with, right? I want to end with this story that happened 2,000 years before Jesus walked on the earth. It's about Abraham and his son Isaac. Abraham is a nobody, right? I think um, maybe a lot of people know his story, right? Abraham and his wife Sarah, they, they, were, they were getting pretty old, right? In age, and they still do not have any children. God promised them children, but no children yet. God did not, you know, deliver yet. It, it wasn't time. It wasn't his time. But by that time, Abraham and Sarah were old of age. They were getting there, right? So Isaac is born. And he is everything they've ever wanted, right? The promise of God is here. Yay. Praise God. This is amazing. Let's live life now, right? And then Genesis 22 happens. Meaning, Abraham is tested by God. That's quite a test. And I want to talk a little bit about it. I want to pause for a second and remind us that, that Torah and then the Old Testament, I fundamentally believe that it's a huge neon and giant sign pointing us to the need and desperation of a Messiah who is the person of Jesus Christ, by the way. So if you want to understand the Old Testament, look no further than Jesus Christ. He is in the Old Testament and he is in this story that I'm about to share with you. Getting back to our story, God speaks to Abraham and instructs him to take Isaac to a mountain and sacrifice him. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine? It's kind of an unusual story that unfolds, no doubt. And if you're wondering if God wants to kill your children, the answer is fundamentally and categorically no. That's not the point of the story either. And as the story uh, plays out, you will see exactly just that. That God does not want Abraham to kill Isaac. Abraham wakes up early the next morning. He gets Isaac. He gets his servants and they go. Three days later, they arrive to this mountain. And Abraham says something pretty interesting in Genesis 22 verse 5 and I like to read it to you stay here with the donkey he says this to his servants I and the boy will go over there 
and worship and come again to you. We will come again to you. Huh. It is so interesting to me that Abraham says we will come back. I guess somehow he knew that they will both make it back. I don't know how, but, but he had this feeling, he had this intuition, whatever it was. It's fascinating to me that Hebrews 11, 9, 19 says this about Abraham. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. Huh. So in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Let me mention to you the fact that most scholars believe that Isaac is at least a teenager, if not in his 20s. One takes it to the extreme and he says he's in his 30s. That's an exaggeration, I believe, but at least a teenager. So he's a strong young man. While Abraham is getting older, he is an old man. So they go up the mountain. They arrive to the place and started to build this altar. The Bible doesn't give us too many details. So I'd like us to use our imagination a little bit, but within the, within the boundaries of what we have clear in the Bible, right? How long does it take to build an altar? Let's start there. I don't know. An altar was typically three to five feet built out of dirt and rocks, right? Maybe a few hours, who knows? And I want to ask you the question, how was their conversation as they were building this altar? Just imagine. Just let your imagination go. Isaac asked Abraham, Dad, hey, Dad, we, we have all the preparation I see. I mean, I've been, we've been doing this, you know, before. I mean, we've offered stuff to God, right? It was pretty cool. And I see all the preparation, right? I see the knife. I see the wood. I see the fire. I see the altar. But, but where's the sacrifice, Dad? I mean, you know, what's going on here? And Abraham makes a prophetic statement that will ring and echo throughout the corridors of history for 2,000 years. The fulfillment of Jesus when God says that he himself will provide the sacrifice for the sin of the world. Keep in mind that we're talking about dying to my life. Okay? So Abraham comes to a moment where he's got to tell his son, son, I, you are the sacrifice they're probably done building the altar probably dirty probably sweaty and Isaac says dad what do we what do we do now and he says uh, son I, I really don't know how to tell you this but God woke me up a few days ago and he he asked me to do something what what was it dad come on tell me I don't know how to tell you this son but it literally breaks my heart, but you, you are the sacrifice. What? That's crazy. Dad, don't talk like that. That's, that's insane. I don't understand it, son. I, I don't, but somehow I believe God is going to perform a miracle. I don't know how and when and where, and, and I don't know. I, I just don't know. It breaks my heart. I am pretty sure that at that moment there was a lot going on emotionally they were confused broken probably crying if not sobbing just a side note when you start following Jesus and worshiping Jesus authentically if you are gonna prepare yourself to understand it all you're gonna be surely disappointed 
when you think about your Christian life and how it's going to unfold. Because there, there are going to be seasons and mountains God is going to ask you to climb and ask you to do things which in the moment do not even make sense. They do not add up. There's no mathematical equation or formula that will help you make sense of the season that you're in. And I'd like to propose that Isaac doesn't get on the altar because Abraham, his father, forces him to. How can a man advanced in years force a strong young man to lay on the altar, right? No, I'm thinking that at some point Isaac said, go ahead, dad. Hours in, I'm assuming. Here's the rope. Go ahead. Tie me. Let's obey God. What? Isaac gets on the altar, right? Abraham takes the knife and immediately God stops the whole thing. God never wanted Isaac as a sacrifice for he would send his own son. Who would become sin. One that doesn't know sin. One who knew no sin that would become sin. That would... And so that he would make us the righteousness of God, right? Immediately he steps in and he says, no, 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 no. Now I know that you love me more than anything. And Abraham looked and there was a ram caught in the thicket, right? Remember that? Which of course is a beautiful picture of Jesus in the crown of thorns that was forced on his head, right? And he was the sacrifice and the substitute for all of us. Verse 23 says, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. That's the gospel right there. Instead of Ovi. Instead of Emma. Instead of Charles. Instead of all of us here. That's the gospel. That's the story of Jesus laying down his life for all of us. But let me ask you a question. How much confidence in God? Did Abraham and Isaac come down that mountain with? After they realized that God provided the sacrifice. Think about that. What am I saying? How much confidence should we have if we really realize that God provided the sacrifice that he laid down his life for us? Imagine if we would really personalize the gospel. Imagine. How the power that we would live our lives with. The confidence in God that whatever happens, man, my life is in God's hands. Can you imagine? You look at the life and trajectory of Isaac. Oh, he was blessed. He trusted God. He, God gave him provision after provision after provision. I'm not talking about cars and houses. and That's secondary. Well, you know what? I'd like to propose that we all would that we would all trust God and say from the bottom of our hearts, this isn't my life, God. It's not about what I want and when I want it. That's the message of Jesus. And I'm going to get on the altar and trust you that you will give me the real life. So if you're in a season, it seems like the knife is lifted over your life. And you're asking yourself, where's God? What's going on? Why won't he deliver? I'm telling you, God is right on time. And I say that tongue-in-cheek because he's, he is right on his time. Isaac knew 
this is not my life anymore. My life has been offered to God. And in comparison to the altar that Jesus had to climb, the altar that Isaac had to climb was a tiny little one. The altar that we all have to climb is so tiny compared to what he climbed on. That cross. To die for the sin of the world. And never mind the sin of the world. My sin. And my shame. And the garbage in my life. Past, present, and future. For all the Christians of all generations, imagine how much filth, imagine how much garbage that rose up into the nostrils of God when Jesus got up on that altar. Our altar is tiny. Our altar is tiny. And just as Isaac wasn't supposed to die, Jesus actually died so that we may live. But in response to what he has done, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It's not my life anymore. Not sure the situation you're in. But hey, if God asks you to quit your job and move to Africa to be a missionary, man, you got to go. I don't know. If God is asking you to make that sacrifice and move to that city and plant that church, you got to go. You got to go. But I believe that the greatest sacrifice God is asking us to bring to him and that goes for everyone here, especially in our day and age where we think that where my life means so much, right? Is living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the altar that we're all called to get up on. Meaning a life that reflects his splendor and his beauty. To fully turn away from our sin. The Bible calls this repentance. And to fully trust in Jesus Christ. And, and love and accept his sacrifice, loving God with all of our heart. How about that for an altar we need to climb on? Listen, if God told you to do something, you got to go and do it. And it probably sounds ridiculous, especially in our day and age. And it doesn't make any sense. But God will, will do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can think, imagine, comprehend, and understand, right? Whatever you do. Get up on the altar. Whatever you do, get up on that altar. The obedient and surrendered life is a secure and confident life. Ironic, but true. I leave us with this. That the way we talk, the way we think, the way we make decisions, the way we talk to our wives, the way we live our lives, it is fully hinged or dictated by how well we personalize the reality that Jesus laid down his life for us. That's the key. Understanding, accepting, personalizing that he laid down his life for us. Man, you meet someone that's in love with Christ and in love with people. And he lives selflessly and sacrificially. You met someone that understands what Jesus has done for him. That's, that's the key. So can I challenge us this morning? May I challenge us this morning that we would get up on the altar. And if you haven't 
done the first altar, which is accept Christ. It's not your life anymore. It's his. And we got to go back to the creator to understand how our lives works best because he's designed it. All right. Would you stand with me this morning? And I want to pray for us. Father, I thank you. I thank you, Father, that you gave whatever you had most costly. Jesus, I thank you that you climbed on that altar, the cross. You who knew no sin, you became sin that we would become right before a holy and a perfect God. But Lord, you... You died for us. You paid for the penalty of our sin and our shame and our condemnation. That, so that you would bring us back into communion with God, into fellowship with God. There was no other way. Even though, Lord, we still try to do it on our own. We still try to save ourselves somehow. You love us regardless of who we are and what we do. I ask, Father, that you would help each one of us this morning to get up on the altar. If there's anyone here, Lord, that does not know you personally yet, that does not have a relationship with you yet, I pray, Father, that you would open their eyes. Father, we are the problem. You are the solution. It's as simple as that. Would you open our eyes to see that this morning? I, Lord, we pray that every single person in here this morning sees that reality. And that we get up on the altar right away, meaning, Lord, we repent. We, we turn back from our rebellious ways. We turn back from our sin. Trying to do life on our own. Father, you are our creator and designer and you know how we work best. So we come to you, Father, our loving Father. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for purposing us. Thank you for comforting us. Thank you for all that you do. And all that you do behind the scenes. And we never get a chance to thank you. We praise you. We honor you. For you, Jesus, are the King of kings. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.